Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Seven Years' War, which originally aired on the 19th of June, 2012. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, history friends all. My name is Zach. So the Seven Years' War is often seen as the First World War, as it was not only fought in Europe, but also between French and British territories in India and North America. As a war in the 18th century, it possessed a striking amount of consequences for all involved. It bankrupted Britain, leading to greater taxes on Americans and then to their revolution. It kicked the French out of India as well, but perhaps most importantly for us, and the focus we'll be taking in this episode, it cemented the legend of Frederick the Great, who withstood the onslaught of Europe's militaries and managed to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. In the original recording of this episode, my mind was amazed at the tenacity, versatility and blind luck really of Frederick the Great. I think it was here that I really became convinced of the idea that more people needed to know about these stories and that the humble history curriculum which we've all been subjected to would greatly benefit, pun intended, from such stories as Frederick the Great's or those that operated around him or within his era. It is with great pleasure then that I revisit the era of Frederick the Great, which I still find myself so deeply attached to and fascinated by. It should go without saying, guys, that this five-year anniversary special was, in many ways, a lot of fun to make, but it also took a long time. 
I don't want to bore you or bother you with constant appeals for your help or aid. If you are broke, if you are sick of me asking you for help, I understand. All I ask is that you simply spread the word of when diplomacy fails. Let people know that this is going on. That every single day for five weeks or so, when diplomacy fails has at least one episode out. I think if you tell people that, they'll probably think it's interesting enough and crazy enough as a task in itself that they'd have to try and check it out for curiosity's sake, if nothing else. So, spread the word, guys. That's all I ask. And if you feel like being a more determined history friend, giving a small amount every month as one of the subscription options, that would be super appreciated too. By doing so, you'll be entered into a draw, if you like, where four times a year you have a chance to win a book and a t-shirt, the former of which will be signed by me and addressed to you. So hey, what are you waiting for? Failing that, go buy a t-shirt or go buy the book. Whatever you do, your continued support is critical to this podcast, guys. And all the support I've received so far has been so appreciated, so please keep it up. Anyway, with that out of the way, guys, let's get down to business. The year is 1748, and a war has just ended in Europe. It is your attitude and the suspicion that you are maturing the boldest designs against him that imposes on your enemy, Frederick the Great. The War of the Austrian Succession raged in Europe from 1740 to 48. The armed camps which fought each other in that eight-year war contained Britain, Austria, the Dutch, Russia, Hanover on one side, and France, Spain, Sweden, Bavaria, Saxony, and Prussia on the other. Its conclusion saw the emergence of Prussia onto the world stage and the breakdown of traditional alliances within Europe. Austria, of whom the success in the war was threatened due to its lack of a strong continental ally, began to drift away from its 25-year tradition of an alliance with Britain, looking instead to France, who it believed was the only power capable of checking Prussia's expanding influence and power. Prussia, in response to this, began making overtures to its enemy of the previous war, Britain. Britain's policy was the same as it had always been in this case, side with a European power which could hold France, at least for a while, and on the other hand protect its firm ally in Hanover, which was tied irreversibly in a personal union to Britain, as a result of the 18th century decision within Britain to adopt a Hanoverian prince into the British royal family, thus beginning Britain's long tradition of association with monarchs of German descent. The French view of continental affairs was that Prussia's growth should be stopped, and that Britain, its eternal enemy, seriously, these guys were always at war, had to be knocked out of the picture, even if temporarily, were France to have any chance of expanding with a more free hand. Britain, France, Spain, the Dutch, and the Scandinavians all had imperial designs in the Americas. At this stage, America was divided into a patchwork of different states, owing their allegiance to different nations back home. Britain was by far the largest master of North America, with its possession of the 13 colonies, a highly lucrative series of provinces which stretched from Massachusetts in the north to Georgia in the south, as well as some territory in what is now Canada. Canada was an area almost entirely dominated by France, under the name of New France, while the French also controlled some territory inland of the British-owned 13 colonies, 
Such matters made resupply of the French colonies a difficult affair. Britain often prevented or harassed French supplies from getting through, causing resentment and anger in France. Spain, meanwhile, had its monopoly within practically all of South and Central America, with the notable exception of Portuguese Brazil. The Dutch had Suriname, just in the north of the South American continent, and were pretty well known within the trade circles in the West and East Indies, as were Britain and France, who had designs in India too. Britain had been quietly chipping away at French and Dutch and Portuguese influence in India through its East India Company for years, especially from Bengal. France, of course, wanted this to stop, but another war so soon after the previous one would be a bad idea. Both Britain and France, as a result of neither side really wanting to make it an official war, began fighting small-scale wars far away in India and America, with each power hoping that the other would not take it to the next level. The diplomatic negotiations which switched nations into different camps is now referred to by historians as the Diplomatic Revolution. It saw illusions of friendship, such as those between Austria and Britain, end, and it saw the beginning of monstrous future rivalries, such as those between France and Prussia, begin. But other countries in Europe wanted their piece of the pie too. Sweden, for one, had a bitter taste in its mouth after its loss to Prussia during the Great Northern War at the beginning of the 1700s, and this war had seen Prussia seize parts of Pomerania, much to Sweden's disgust. Spain and Portugal had both fallen from their previous zenith of power, but were considerable nations nonetheless, as they both possessed large empires as we saw. The Netherlands was rebuilding after previous wars, and busied itself with maintaining its empire overseas, particularly in the East Indies. Poland was at this time currently in the final years of its union with Lithuania, and it viewed the prospect of a future war, especially one which involved fighting, occurring all over its borders, with a sense of unease. When foreign powers weren't fighting or debating over who should own the crown of Poland next, Poland was generally seen as a decadent power in decline, or, in Russia's case, a useful tool for the future. Prussia had held out the prospect of an alliance to Poland-Lithuania, as its union made it known, but it could receive nothing better than a pleasant no thanks. The Poles at this stage did not really want to get involved. The Russians were another issue too, as they were a large, almost uncontainable mass of people, but they were viewed by the civilised European powers as being quite backward, and while useful as a potential ally in a future two-front war, they should not and could not be wholly relied upon. Any two-front war scenario immediately conjures the classic German problem of encirclement, and Prussia was in this case the target of some pretty devious diplomacy. France and Austria hoped to isolate it by forming a series of alliances with powers around Prussia. The Empress of Austria, Maria Theresa, whose very succession to the throne of Austria had been the subject of the previous war, was out for revenge, and she didn't have to look very hard to find nations which Prussia had ticked off. Maria Theresa was eager to avenge herself upon Prussia's ruler, in particular, Frederick the Great, who had waged war against her with expansion in mind and at the young Empress's expense, taking advantage of clauses in the Habsburg succession laws in order to justify his attack on the Habsburg hereditary lands, which included the seizure of Silesia. Sweden, to Prussia's north, was willing, as was Russia, to its east. France would cover the west, and Maria's own country Austria would cover the south, 
along with whatever confederation of German city-states she could concoct. It was settled then. France and Austria had their solution. Should war break out, which Maria hoped it would, Prussia would be surrounded on all sides by states far more populous than its own. It would take one hell of a leader to carry Prussia through this difficult time, but this leader was none other than King Frederick II of Prussia, but we know him today as Frederick the Great. Frederick was made King of Prussia after the death of his father Frederick I in 1740, just before the Austrian War of Succession broke out. He fought to make Prussia great in Europe, yet the war with Austria was only one direction he wanted Prussia to go in. Frederick had grand plans for Polish-owned and Austrian-owned land. He wanted Austrian land in the form of the rich province of Silesia, which he took, and in the Polish corridor, which separated East from West Prussia. When the war ended in 1748, Frederick began to move closer to Britain and its Hanoverian ally. This made Prussia practically the only ally Britain could call on, on the continent. A semi-alliance of sorts was soon approached with Britain, in which Britain promised not to intervene on Austria's behalf, if war broke out between Prussia and Austria, but only as long as Frederick promised he would protect Hanover from the French. Frederick agreed to this somewhat rubbish deal, and the result was that on the 16th of January 1756, the Westminster Convention was signed between the two powers. Britain hoped that Prussia would hold France and Austria back, while Britain took all of France's possessions in America and India, and protecting its natural ally of Hanover, from French aggression. This brings me nicely to the strategies of both Britain and France in the war. Before the war had begun, both Britain and France had devised war plans which best suited their own circumstances. Britain, with its large navy, was to harass and attempt to take over as many French colonies as it could, though the focus was India and America. Because of this, Britain was less focused on landing troops on the European continent, since as far as Britain was concerned, after it had cozied up to Prussia, fighting in Europe was Prussia's job. Britain's Prime Minister at that time, the Duke of Newcastle, had been the advocate of this policy, and believed that war on the continent would likely complicate the war Britain would fight against France abroad. Therefore, if it were possible in future, Britain would try and avoid intervening in future wars on the continent, which involves the major European powers. Which begs the obvious question, if Britain didn't want the complication of war on the continent, then why did it enter into an alliance with perhaps the most hated and feared state in Europe, Prussia? The straightforward answer is Hanover. London couldn't allow the ancestral home of their monarchy fall into enemy hands, and so to protect Hanover they required another power to hold back the continental enemies Britain would now incur. Prussia seemed well positioned for this task, not least because both states were German and in close proximity to one another. The reputation of Frederick the Great preceded him in London, and his choice as an ally was a popular one. It was hoped that he would be able to hold the enemies of Britain at bay while Britain went colony-grabbing abroad, at the expense of France. France was like the polar opposite of Britain, because while Britain viewed colonies with the utmost importance, France viewed them as expendable. Now that's not to say they wanted to throw them away, but certainly France believed that focusing its attention on the conflict in Europe would be the best course of action. This was done for two main reasons. Number one, French statesmen believed that a victorious campaign in Europe would force Britain to negotiate, and that when it did, 
France would take back whatever Britain took from it overseas and then some. This explains why France moved repeatedly against Hanover during this war. If it could ransom any nation back to Britain, surely Hanover, the home of Britain's monarch, would receive the highest price and could be traded for any territory France might lose overseas. Number two, and this one is more of necessity, Britain's navy dwarfed that of France's to the extent that, even if the French had wanted to, their ability to reinforce their colonies would be severely hampered by Britain's domination of the seas. The French strategy then was part necessity and part wishful thinking because, as we shall soon see, they don't call him the Great for nothing. Britain would certainly have preferred that the war did not explode onto Europe, as it would distract it from its colony grabbing in addition to threatening Hanover. Since 1754, Britain had been fighting France in North America, but it was not an official war. It seemed like both countries were content to view it as a sideshow. Both observed a kind of awkward tension, while they fought each other thousands of miles away, but they made little or no mention of it at home to any of the nations in Europe and certainly not to each other. Kind of like, don't mention the war, in America. So if France and Britain were content to quietly duel it out in America without starting another major European war and all that entailed, where exactly does the Seven Years' War come from? Well, actually, France and Britain were not content to just quietly fight each other, at least not after two years of doing so. After months of tension, both decided that it would be more efficient and more straightforward and that there'd be more opportunities for plunder and victory to simply get the war out in the open. So, on the 18th of May 1756, France began the war officially by invading Menorca, a British possession in the Balearic Isles in the Mediterranean. But this was still just a war between Britain and France, nobody else was invited. For these few months then, Britain and France carried the show by themselves, until somebody had to go and get jealous of all the attention they were getting, and try to join the party. The fact that a great war had erupted in Europe less than a decade before seemed irrelevant to many in Europe. The Netherlands was in fact the only major state in Europe who saw the wasted resources of the previous war and believed such a war would warrant the same results again. Despite Britain's diplomatic moves to bring the Dutch over to their side, the British could still only rely on Prussia militarily in 1756. The other two states who would be neutral initially but would eventually join their respective war parties were Spain and Portugal. So if you can imagine that practically everyone else in Europe was involved in some way or another, is it really any wonder why some 18th century... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Historians view the Seven Years' War not just as a world war and the first of its kind in Europe, but as part of a second 100 years' war. Frederick watched the war between France and Britain set off a few chain reactions on the continent, as Austria, desiring revenge, had built up an international bloc around Prussia, containing all the nations in Europe which Prussia had annoyed over the years, and the list was a fairly long one. Frederick was moved to act against Austria by fear more than anything else, how long before the four nations surrounding him established a unified strategy and launched a simultaneous attack on Prussian lands. Frederick knew he would have to act before it was too late, so on the 29th of August 1756 he preemptively marched into and occupied Saxony, causing declarations of war to begin flying around the world. As far as Frederick was concerned, he had launched a necessary strike against Austria before she could form a coherent coalition against him. What Frederick didn't know was that he had just started the Seven Years' War, a conflict which would very nearly spell the end of Prussia as a state. So Frederick moved quickly to overrun Saxony. His strategy depended on defeating Austria in the early years of the war, leaving him free to take out his other enemies individually. Frederick's goal was also examined by the historian Franz Szabo in his book The Seven Years' War in Europe, 1756-1763, wherein Szabo writes, Frederick's military objective was to eliminate his most dangerous foe, Austria, in a quick and decisive campaign, which would hopefully make any campaign against Russia, France or Sweden unnecessary. Frederick very nearly succeeded. If he had, the war may have lasted only a few months. His crushing defeat of Saxony, which he viewed as the threat he had to remove before he removed the biggest threat, went very well for Prussia, as they had the element of surprise. Prussia defeated a Austro-Saxon army soundly at the Battle of Lobositz, and Frederick then pressed the beaten Saxons into his army, a move which would have both long-reaching and immediate consequences. Austria was outraged both at the forced militarization of Saxony and by Prussia's sudden attack which had caught it so woefully unprepared. So to counterbalance Prussia's clear advantages in the war, Austria made a big fuss about Saxony's neutrality and how it was just minding its own business when Frederick went and destroyed it. Vienna hoped that this would be a wake-up call for the other European powers who didn't like Freddy so much, and it seemed to do the trick. The rhetoric caused the other European powers to mobilise their reserves. With Austria on the back foot, France quickly became the most immediate continental threat to Prussia, even while its attentions were pulled towards Britain abroad. These pulled attentions partially explain why France didn't act immediately against Prussia, 
and by May 1757, Prussian soldiers were marching towards Prague, an Austrian-owned city in Bohemia. The Battle of Prague, which followed this march, was an especially bloody affair. Frederick later called it a victory, but the facts tell a less triumphant story. Frederick marched with an army of 67,000 men against Austria's 60,000. The Prussians suffered 14,000 casualties, the Austrians suffered 12,000. The Austrians retreated in good order behind the walls of Prague, while Frederick believed he did not have enough men to besiege the city. The crucial aspect of the battle, though, was that Frederick's men in their condition were in even less of a position to win another battle against a huge Austrian counter-attack in the Battle of Kolin on the 18th of June. The loss at this battle forced Frederick back into Prussia, and it was from this point that things began to unravel for Frederick. In July, he received word that the Russians were now invading East Prussia. On August the 30th, the Battle of Gross-Jägersdorf was another defeat for the Prussians, this time in home territory. Frederick was also being told about French moves to the west and Swedish moves to the north, and the additional possibility of Polish moves to the southeast, as everyone tried to get on the bandwagon. No doubt Frederick probably wished he had made more friends in the continent in the years before, but for the moment he simply had to grin and bear it. Frederick's position didn't prevent him from displaying his trademark flashes of brilliance. Major victories at the battles of Rossbach and Lissa on November 5th and December 5th respectively sent both France and Austria reeling. It seemed as though Frederick could close the year of 1757 on a happy note of campaigning. But Frederick would be denied this happiness, as his supposed ally Hanover had taken a beating from France over the previous year. France overran the Hanoverian defences and defeated the Hanoverians soundly in the Battle of Hastenbeck in July 1757. Further successive defeats followed, and Frederick, relatively helplessly to prevent its fall, was forced to watch as Hanover agreed to remove itself from the war later that year and endure French occupation. Less disconcerting for the Prussians than the actual occupation of Hanover was British indignation at London's perceived failure from Prussia to defend its ally. If the British were less than pleased, Frederick was more than capable of answering back. In the fraught nature of the Continental War, it was high time that Britain lent its Prussian ally a hand and stopped messing around in the colonies overseas. The current state of affairs wasn't fair, and it especially was unfair to blame Prussia for failing to defend the ancestral home of the British monarchy. Frederick couldn't do everything at once, and he sent a message to the Duke of Newcastle telling him so, saying, To a large extent I am alone in this conflict. You are a firm ally of Prussia, yet you have sent no proof of such. The enemies of Prussia grow stronger by the day, and while she does her utmost, she cannot exist in this state of isolation forever. As the year 1757 drew to a close, Britain's campaign in North America was encountering severe setbacks as well, although in the Indian theatre of the war, Britain soundly defeated the French and Indian allies in the Battle of Plassey, with news that brought great rejoicing at home and saw London stabilise its government after some difficult months. The Duke of Newcastle formed a coalition government with William Pitt the Elder, and this coalition switched Britain's policy from sole focus on the campaign in North America to one of grabbing French colonies around the world and supporting Prussia's continued campaigns against the states all around it. 
This latter point was crucial for Frederick as it meant he could now count on Britain both monetarily and militarily. London made its commitment clear when in April 1758 both powers signed the Anglo-Prussian Convention. Now Frederick got what he was looking for. Britain agreed to pay Prussia 670 grand every year in support of the war effort if Prussia took a more active role in defending Hanover. Hanover had re-emerged back on the scene after an appeal in early 1758, saw King George II push for the liberation of his homeland, this time supported directly by British soldiers. Now that the British were finally committing actual bodies on the ground, London was beginning to feel more immediate results. The British and Hanoverian armies pushed France out of Hanover, and as a side result, Prussia's western flank was now better insulated. Frederick wanted to start off the campaign season of 1758 with a bang, so he invaded Moravia, modern-day Czech Republic, to besiege the city of Olomouc. But things did not go very well for Frederick, and the rest of the year would be no exception. His forces were defeated at the Battle of Domstadl, meaning his army besieging Olomouc had to break off the siege and return home to Prussia. This was the last time Frederick would fight in Austrian territory. From now on, at least for the foreseeable future, he would be defending his homeland. Hanover, on the other hand, was making moves which were sending France spinning out of control. They had been reinforced by 9,000 British soldiers in early 1758 and began campaigning on the offensive, capturing French lands and bringing war closer to France than any French official had expected. This Hanoverian British army defeated the French in the Battle of Crefield on June 23, 1758, which caused alarm in Paris. This Allied force eventually retreated across the Rhine in good order before they could be encircled, which compounded a successful campaigning season. These campaigns had kept French armies occupied and ensured that Frederick wouldn't have to deal with the war on too many fronts, a fact which he accepted was down to the very fortunate British intervention. Perhaps buoyed by the British example, Frederick was able to make a comeback in the Battle of Zorndorf on August 25th, 1758, a victory which prevented Austrian and Russian armies linking up, at least for the moment. But it always seemed like one step forward and two steps back for Frederick, as the Swedes now began to attack Prussia's northern interests. This resulted in an inconclusive attack by the Prussians on the Swedish-held fortress town of Tornov, on the 25th of September, and a retreat under the superior numbers of the Swedish army on the 28th of September in the Second Battle of Fairbellon, the first one occurring under much different circumstances in 1677, when Prussian military prowess then exploded onto the scene under the Great Elector, Frederick's great-grandfather. Much like his great-grandfather, Frederick was perceptive enough to know when he was in dire straits, and by autumn 1758 he could see that he was stretched too thin. Maria Theresa's dream of sticking it to Prussia seemed to be becoming a reality, as the problems of fighting a multiple front war was made all too clear. Frederick just couldn't get a break. Russia was able to occupy East Prussia in early 1758, and they stayed there until 1762. Frederick was more worried about the Austrians and French, but still... The Russians were an annoyance that wouldn't go away. With that land occupied, he couldn't get either monies, men or materials from it. 
Then, on October 14, 1758, his main army was surprised by the Austrians in the Battle of Hochkirch, where the Prussians lost most of their field artillery, but retreated in good order. Frederick badly needed a decisive victory in the following year, 1759. Instead of a victory, though, he would be handed the worst defeat of his life. 1759 was an important year, as numerous events occurred which shaped the outcome of the war. First, in France, the French policy of trying to fight in the continent at the expense of everything else was escalated when plans were developed to invade Britain itself. These plans did not escape Britain's notice, however, and British strategists made plans to trap the French fleets before they ferried the crack French soldiers across. They achieved this in various sea battles. The first one occurred in the Battle of Lagos in the Mediterranean, and the second more crucial one off the French coast of Brest on the 20th of November 1759. These naval defeats reaffirmed British dominance of the sea, and scattered any French hopes of knocking Britain out of the war. Second, events in Hanover were taking a surprising turn, as the Anglo-Hanoverian armies were defeating French armies of varying size. The most notable French defeat came in the Battle of Minden on the 1st of August 1759, a result which halted French moves east for the remainder of that year. Such successes, combined with victories in North America and India, underlined what was to be hailed as the Year of Victories in Britain, as George III ascended to the throne that year following the death of his grandfather George II. With a new, youthful king on the throne, further victories in India and North America added to the idea that British prestige was at an all-time high. The contrast with their ally in Berlin couldn't be starker. In 1759, while London was enjoying a series of victories, a series of Prussian losses occurred which almost wiped the state out and nearly caused Frederick to commit suicide. In the Battle of Kay on the 23rd of July, 1759, a large Russian army defeated a smaller Prussian army in East Prussia, leaving the door open for greater Russian invasions. Frederick was at this stage pleading for direct British assistance, but Britain said its main forces were tied down in Hanover. Frederick needed a pitched battle desperately if he was going to force somebody out of the war, so he marched his army to where the Russians were encamped and engaged their flank with his entire army on the morning of the 12th of August, 1759. But Frederick didn't realise that while he had been marching towards them, the Russians had been joined by an army of 19,000 Austrians. Despite this, though, the resulting shock from the Prussian attack could have given Frederick the victory, but Frederick insisted on pressing on into the heart of the Austro-Russian army. It was the greatest mistake of his career. Frederick planned on utilising his famous oblique order manoeuvre, in which he concentrated his entire army's strength on an enemy's flank. It had worked before very well for Frederick, he had practically invented the strategy and perfected its use, but this time it was too forced and too predictable, and the commander of the enemy army, Peter Saltikov, decided to withdraw his flank instead of trying to move his whole army around to fight back. As his flank withdrew in good order up a hill, the majority of the Prussian force followed them, only realising once they reached the top that they were now in range of the Austro-Russian artillery. Despite this though, Frederick was able to hold his men together. He steadied their line and moved them calmly out of the way. 
Then the cavalry in Frederick's army charged recklessly at the enemy's centre, which doomed them in the process, and practically all of them were killed. Without any cavalry left to support them, as those that had survived had fled, the Austrians and Prussians were able to counter-attack and the battle was effectively over. Frederick escaped with his life, but he contemplated ending it there and then. It was a devastating loss for Frederick. He was almost positive that this was the end of his dream for Prussian dominance and doubted in fact that his state could survive. He sent this message to Berlin only hours after the battle had been lost, writing, This morning at 11 o'clock I have attacked the enemy. All my troops have worked wonders, but at a cost of innumerable losses. Our men got into confusion. I assembled them three times. In the end I was in danger of getting captured and had to retreat. My coat is perforated by bullets. Two horses of mine have been shot dead. My misfortune is that I am still living. Our defeat is very considerable. To me remain 3,000 men from an army of 48,000 men. At the moment in which I report all this, everyone is on the run. I am no more the master of my troops. Thinking of the safety of anybody in Berlin is a good activity. It is a cruel failure that I will not survive. The consequences of the battle will be worse than the battle itself. I do not have any more resources and, frankly confessed, I believe that everything is lost. I will not survive the doom of my fatherland. Farewell forever. This battle, Kunersdorf, was a defeat on a level never before experienced by Frederick. By all accounts, it should have meant the end for Prussia right then and there. Prussia had witnessed three plus years of attacks from all sides, by powers greater in size and scale than its own. I often compare this to the Battle of Cannae in my head, which we know all about because I did a podcast on it. Obviously, Hannibal's defeat of Rome was far more slick and impressive than the Austro-Russian standard 1-2 punch, but the results were the same. If we imagine that Prussia was Rome in this case, then Prussia has just been handed its biggest defeat in history. If you listen to episode 2 though, you'll know that Rome somehow came back from that defeat, despite all reason permitting an immediate surrender. So, how did Prussia survive? Well next time we'll see that it was by the skin of its teeth. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 